Um, today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7, which is on page 1175 of Pew Bible. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Well, as usual, usual, I've um, managed to um, pile something up on the back of my quiet time and I'll have to get a bus in about 20 minutes, so sorry, Lord. Uh, Ephesians 4, 7 to 16. another, Another gift passage. You know, God gave gifts to some people so that they could serve other people. Um... I always open these passages, I always feel like the same thing, God. Uh, Father, please help me to read your word more slowly. When I hear the same thing in three passages, could it be that you have one thing to say to me? Or Father, do I just need to read more carefully and listen more deeply? Uh, Father, open my ears so I hear what you have to say and live by your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so might begin one of my quiet times, always with a cuppa, always distracted, always kind of uh, ready to get out of the chair (laughs) pretty quickly, and always knowing. Always knowing that I'm doing the best thing in the day. Um, As I said, over January, I want to simulate. Uh, some of my quiet times in order to stimulate it in in us. Uh, And the reason is because um, we want to be people who understand more and more what it is to live by God's grace, to dig deeply daily into God's grace. So um, in December, while we were all busy shopping, I spent some time in the Bible tracking down passages that talked about the grace of God and the growth of the believer. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to do some quiet times in that, and I think I'll share that with church. Uh, and uh, this is the result of that. 
Last week, you'll remember, we looked at a passage in uh, 2 Corinthians that said that God's grace comes close. It's kind of made perfect. It's, it's powerful in weakness. So we saw that uh, actually to be humbled and weak is a great part of the Christian life uh, and a kind of necessary, essential, obvious part of the Christian life uh, in which God's grace becomes readily, powerfully available to us. Um, today we're looking at something different. And I want to show you a kind of way of reading the Bible. I used to read the Bible, if you remember, and been around for a while, according to a thing called the Swedish method, which was like a light bulb, a question mark and an arrow. Put your hand up if you remember that at all. Does anyone remember that? Yeah, about a third of the room. Uh, lately I've been trying to do something just a bit more that will slow me down a bit more than that. And I've been reading, I've been slowing me down a lot. I've been reading according to a coma. I don't look like I'm a coma when I'm reading the Bible in a coma, but those are the words, the letters I use to slow my reading down. And they are context, C, O, observation, M, message, A, application. And you'll see them in your sermon outline. So I'm going to work through this passage just according to the coma method, which is just one of the ways that I do a um, personal quiet time these days. So let's start with context. Why, verse 7, is Paul outlining the way grace has been given individually to different people. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Uh, All right, seems pretty obvious to me that that's what it's saying. It's saying that God has individually given grace to individual people. Why say that? As always, when we open a Bible passage, we're not the first people in a room. There's been something going on before us and it's worth kind of just listening for a minute and checking back. And it turns out what's gone on before us in this room that we've just walked into is Paul describing at the beginning of chapter 4 how the Ephesians now have come to follow the call of Jesus. They're now to live a life worthy of that. Now you could think what would be a life worthy of the calling and you could probably think of a hundred things. But Paul thinks about humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. And the reason is because he wants them to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. He's basically saying, now you've come to Jesus, make sure you function like one people under one Lord. Be unified people. Make sense? Therefore, verse 7, we get like a great contrast. Paul begins to turn and say how do you do that how do you be one and the answer isn't by all like you know flattening down all your differences and you know it's not by becoming machine-like robots no actually God's given us each different graces different gifts that we might use to work each other up into Christ to build each other up into Christ so that that's the context now this is an important context by the way Because if you ever meet anyone that talks about the amazing grace God has given them, you know, their own special spiritual gift, and and their talk about themselves makes them look big and makes you feel small, then you know that you're in the presence of error. Right? Because you can just see it here. That's not the purpose of the grace of God to individuals, is to somehow make an individual awesome and make other individuals feel kind of second rate that would that would be you know you could literally say oh well i have received grace as god christ has apportioned it to me let me tell you about myself that, that would look accurate from verse 7 but the context says that would be terribly out of context 
If you find that happening, you're in the presence of, you want to just step back away a bit and open the Bible again. Okay? And it does happen, my friends. Just beware of it. There's context. Okay? Now, that's, that's great. I know what was going on in the room before I walked into verse 7. Now let me slow down and look at verse 7 and observe 7 to 16. And there's a lot to see. It's such a weird and funky passage. You've got like a banner statement and a quote from scripture. You've got a weird argument about ascension and dissension in brackets. Then you've got a list of jobs, only half of which I think I understand. Then you've got like a a sailing image and then there's an an image from anatomy. Uh, When I write, I'm not that busy and and I think too fast, right? What is is going on here? Slow down. One way to slow down and sort of see the forest for the trees, because there's a lot of detail here, a lot of trees. If you pull back and you want to see the forest, one way to do it is to take a pen and go to work on your Bible. A bit like this. Here's, a page of, here's this page of the Bible. When I received my first Bible, by the way, as a Christian, I was 19, living in Glebe, become a Christian in a house with about three or four other Christians and five hard-drinking young men, of which I was one of them until I became a believer. And um, uh, my mate who really helped me come to Christ, gave me a Bible and he opened it and he handed it to me and I'm like, thanks, mate, you've ruined it already. He'd drawn all over it. And what a great gift with my first Bible as a believer that I got the lesson that actually it's great to get your pen out and write all over your Bible. And this is what I'd do with this passage. I might just look at all the little words because when you need to see the forest, strangely enough, you've got to notice some little trees, Right? And those little words, they're like kind of, um, they're like uh, where, the, where, where the train carriages of a passage get switched and moved onto different tracks, right? So if you, if you highlight the little words, you can see some amazing things. So I'd highlight that but, that kind of this is why, or that's like a bit like a so or because of this, that, that so halfway down the passage and then that then. They look like the least impressive words in the passage. They're the most boring words you'll find there, except that they're actually just reorienting the whole passage. And what they're doing is showing me this. I might even write this in the kind of column of my Bible, that I've got a weird contrast there. I'm given sort of a reason for the contrast, more detail on what he says at first, and then a result. And now I can begin to look at this passage a bit more slowly. You don't have to do what I do. It's just what I do. You can do your own thing. But take your pen out and really... Begin to break up God's word so you can see it slowly. Let's start with that observation about the first thing, the contrast, the but. Now, we've already seen that Paul turns to talk about the individual grace given to people because he's talking about how to be unified. I just want to focus on one thing there, the word grace. To each one of us, grace is being given as Christ apportioned it. Here's the thing about grace. If you're a Christian, you have to know this word. To be a Christian and not understand grace would be the rankest laziness possible because it is, if not our first name, at least our middle name. It is the, one of the most profound heart of the heart of the faith words, right? like faith. If you don't understand grace, you don't understand what it is to be a Christian. So we want to get this down, right? And a good definition of grace, that funny little kind of Greeky word, is undeserved kindness. Now you can come up with your own definition as long as it means a great kindness, an extraordinary love, and it's undeserved. 
You can find your own words, that's grind. Or you can use mine because I got them from someone else anyway. That's what it is. Now here's the thing I learned about grace, right? What I learned about grace, and this is a great thing to learn, was that God with his right hand just extended the most extraordinary undeserved kindness to the world by sending his son to die for sin. And that happened 2,000 years ago and nothing can ever take it away. And it was, and it was done for everyone. That's the scale of that grace. Right? And I remember hearing that that was done once for all. In fact, I read it in the Bible. Nothing can ever take that away. If I, if I trust in that, that's like an anchor into bedrock. You know, that's a, that's, I'm pinned into concrete then, right? So therefore, I always felt a bit anxious when people would talk about grace in any other way, as if you can add more grace. But actually, when you read the Bible, it turns out you can. And the reason why is this. Because that grace that God has given isn't an amount. It's not a substance. It's not a thing God put in the world and going, there you go, that's grace. It's him at work. It's his heart. And so with one hand, he saved the world through the death of Jesus. This amazing grace that we sing of. But because grace is his heart, he has more. And with his other hand, he continues to give grace for all sorts of things. So, last week we learned, he continues from his gracious heart to offer power to the weak. Strength to the humble. That, that's a grace I continue to live in. I'll never get out of this grace. That's why I'm in Christ. But when I'm weak and humbled, God comes with the same gracious heart undeservedly to my aid today and gives me more grace. It doesn't give me more of Jesus' salvation. I've already got that entirely. He gives me more of his kindness, more of his undeserved kindness. What happens today? Well, another thing happens. Having saved people in Christ, he gives a grace to individuals just as Jesus divides it up. What is this grace? Well, I can see it's, it's a kind of gift, a kind of um, job, if you like, or a competency or a, I don't know, a skill. I don't know. Let's just call it a gift. That's what he says after all in verse 8. It's a gift that people might do something for the sake of others. Here's a grace of God. What is this grace that gets individually apportioned? Well, there's more detail down, isn't there? We'll get to it in a minute, verse 11. I notice, however, in 8 to 10, that we're told kind of how this grace comes about. And with a whole lot of strange quoting of the Bible and a strange argument in brackets, we learnt it comes from Jesus because he's so powerful. He's phenomenally victorious. He's ascending into heaven and has all power. And now he's more than able to give you a gift. Who's he given it to? Well, verse 11 tells me who. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. Now here's the thing. I'm lazy when I read the Bible. And so when I read passage about gifts, I'm aware of at least two other passages in the Bible where God says, I've given you each a gift, now use it together because you'll be better off that way. And I'm pretty happy to sign out and get on my bus and go to work. But this passage is different. How is it different? Well, it doesn't talk about all the gifts. It talks about four, five, probably four, two of them I think go together, gifts that are given. And if you notice, they're given to just one group of people in the church 
in order to equip all people. That's different to the other gift passages. Those people are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and I think it's pastor teachers, though I might be wrong. Okay? And what they do is they speak God's word. That's what those gifts are. Different kinds of ways of speaking God's word with the result that everyone then gets equipped to, to, to do their service and then by their service and this teaching, the body of Christ grows up into maturity and fullness. Verse 13. That's so cool. I reckon I've done a lot of observing. One more thing. I can see in verse 14 to 16 that when this happens, people no longer get blown about. There's the naval image. They're no longer just blown about by winds. And there are extraordinary winds at the moment. Your neighbour who thinks you're an idiot for being a Christian, the person that thinks Scott Morrison's an idiot for being a Christian, and you're like him, so you're an idiot. Oh, by the way, you're, you're functionally out of date on about five moral issues. Um, there are so many winds looking to blow you around at the moment, aren't they? To say to make you feel like an idiot for being a Christian. And that's from outside. And then within Christianity, there's a whole lot of false teaching that will blow you around. Like the person that says, I'm, better, I'm amazing in Jesus and makes you feel like nothing in Jesus. And you can feel really blown around. But apparently, if you lock into the speaking of God's word by listening and then you serve one another, we get to not be blown around. And instead, we get to be knitted together like muscles and ligaments and grow like healthy kids into great mature adults together. A mature adult. There's, there's the passage, right? Context, observation. What's the message? Well, that's simple. I might write this in my journal. Jesus is kind enough to pour out speakers and teachers of his word on his church so that everyone grows in the knowledge that brings unity and the deeds and knowledge that bring maturity. That's the message. So, C-O-M-A. I said, last service, I said, what's the A stand for again? And the youngest person in the room, Ivy Smith, second youngest person in the room said, she was halfway through a drink, she went, application. <laughs> I went, can't believe you're listening, Ivy. It's application. What's an application? Two quickly. One, teaching matters. The first application is so obvious. It's so clear. The speaking of God's word matters. Those who speak it matter. This is important because God's word does not ordinarily come to us in flashes of lightning or in visions of nature or personal gut hunches while you're on the bus. Now, I just want to highlight this for you. There are a lot of people who really think that if God is going to speak to them, it must be an extraordinary moment. It has to happen on Malabar headland or you've got to devote time to sitting on the beach or, you know, whatever the case may be. Or are so impressed by a kind of powerful thought that hits them while on the bus, they go, God told me. Now, that's fine. And if you get those hunches, then take them seriously. And the way to take them seriously is go back home, open your Bible and go, is this consistent with what God's word says? And if it is, then take it really seriously. If it's not, then throw it away. That's what you do with that. Why? Because God's word does not normally come to us in extraordinary ways. It actually comes to us in the very ordinary way of people speaking it to us. 
apostles, who sound extraordinary, but that really just means the sent ones. They're like missionaries. There were 12 technical apostles, and then there are a whole lot of people who are just the sent ones. They're missionaries, if you like. The prophets, who are people who apply the word to contemporary life and give you an encouragement for today. The evangelists, who are those people that just can't stop talking that Jesus is Lord. They're painful but necessary. We love them and we wish we had more of them, even though they're often, you know, kind of disturb God's church. More evangelists, I say. And the pastors and teachers, who kind of do all of the above, as is necessary for the needs of the flock they care for. These, this matters. But I'll tell you something about these people. They are phenomenally ordinary Except for the dude I listen to online who has like 3 million followers, every other single guy I listen to or girl I listen to who speaks the word of God to me does so in a way that I think is utterly ordinary. And no one would think it's vastly spiritual. In fact, one of my favourite times of hearing God's word was sitting under the teaching of a guy called Dick Blackett, a wool classer from Mittagong at my previous church. He was so ordinary, he preached for 30 minutes and 25 minutes it was preaching, five minutes it was getting up from the fourth pew and getting up to the pulpit because he was so slow, he was so hunched, he had to get up to the pulpit. The platform was no bigger than this one. He had to kind of get onto this edge of the pulpit. You'd just hope the pulpit wouldn't tip over, right? And he'd haul himself around it, put his hands up, and then he'd go. And I loved hearing the word of God from Dick Blackett. So ordinary. So ordinary, and yet it was God's word. So the question is, do I have a listening heart? I'm a talking person, so it's a good question for me. For people, people here who are other, other preachers here, the question whether you have a listening heart too is a really good question. But it's true for all of us. Do I have a listening heart? Every Christian must ask this. Am I prepared to really listen to God's word and listen to it? Whoever speaks it, assuming they're faithful. There's a second application here, and it's a bit more controversial, I guess, um, but very important, and it's read the Bible. Some churches assume from this passage that because some people are gifted, then other Christians shouldn't read the Bible because they might teach themselves and they haven't been given the gift. They think this is actually dangerous, that people left on their own the Bible would invent crazy ideas. And you know what? They're right some of the time. I think this is an idea to be respected, actually. You'll find it particularly in the Greek Orthodox Church, where very few members of the church will read the Bible for themselves. That's the job for someone else. Am I right, Ed? Yep. You'll find in some strains of the Catholic Church, please don't say all, the Catholic Church is a behemoth. It's a massive thing. It's a million things. It's not one thing, right? And there are very big lay Bible reading movements in the Catholic Church, right? But you will find it in strains of the Catholic Church. No, no, it's not my job to read the Bible. And you'll find it practically in many Protestant churches where we go, no, I listen to the preacher. (laughs) I want to say the logic is not terrible, and it might come from this passage. Some were given to teach so that others might serve, but I don't agree. And here's the reason why. The waters are so rocky and the winds are up so high 
And a godless world is around you at 360 degrees and it teaches you all the time and it's teaching you while it sells to you and it doesn't love you. And you're listening to it and you don't even realise like I am. So to check out your growth in the knowledge of God's word to 25 minutes of me banging on every week is nearly bankrupt. I don't want that pressure. I'm not that good. Right? And you're not that good a listener. So let's do better. Let's understand the situation we're in, that, it's, that we're capable of being blown around. We're capable of being like atrophying, 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 weakening muscles. Thank you. Like weakening muscles. And no, no, no. Let's commit to what grows us, the knowledge of God's word. You don't read the Bible on your own so that you can be your own little pope and your own little preacher and go, everyone else doesn't understand the Bible like me. No, you read it in concert with all those other people reading it, in concert with all the stuff you've been taught, going, does this deepen and confirm what I know? Does it challenge it? Does it question it? You, don't, you read it alone, but you don't ever really read it alone, do you? You read it knowing you've got conversations behind you and ahead of you so that together we grow up into the knowledge of Jesus. I want you to, I'm going to finish today by urging you to consider the mature Christians you know who sail straight, who grow tall. I want you to wonder what's the engine room of their ship? What proteins are they taking? And I expect you will see nine times out of ten times if you ask them, then say, it's knowing the Bible. It's knowing the Bible. It's hearing God speak. So let me encourage you to be a person who digs more deeply into the grace of God by listening to God. Firstly, by good, faithful teaching that gives you clarity and truth. Secondly, by a regular personal practice of Bible reading that deepens this knowledge and prays it into your life, conforming you more and more to your Lord Jesus. As I said, we'll get very practical about this in a couple of weeks. There'll be a bunch of resources at the back of church that you can buy to set you on this path this year, or you can start today. You do, after all, have a Bible, and if you don't, take the one that is on your lap now home. And when you take it home, you can open it, and you too can go into a coma like me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and it's a new year. And we need new resolutions because we have weak wills. So we, um, we, just, we pray that our uh, resolutions would be real habits and these would be habits of grace, the things that take us back to you and your kindness, to the way you give us power and humility, to the way you give us yourself in your word. And by both these things, Father, you grow us up into Jesus. Help us dig deeper daily into him. Amen.